this on? Yeah. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I guess it's afternoon now. <clears throat> and uh, welcome, uh, welcome to the Atlantic Council. Uh, we're very pleased uh, to see all of you here today for the discussion on climate change, economic resilience, and national security. And uh, this is a, uh, uh, another in our series, on, in our climate change series. So again, very it's great to see all of you. Um, I guess I should have introduced myself. If you don't know me, I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the director of the Global Energy Center here. Um, <clears throat> with the COP21 climate talks in Paris fast approaching, uh, the eyes of the international community now more than ever are fixated squarely uh, on climate uh, issues. And even today, though, there remains enormous work to be done. And, you know, people talk about the road to Paris, but it's really the road through Paris and the road after Paris uh, that is going to be uh, critically important. And that work uh, cannot focus exclusively on the mitigation side of the climate equ equation as the impacts of climate change are being felt uh, across the world even today. <clears throat> Today's discussion seeks to shed light on the ways that climate change is already impacting our environment, the economy, and national security at this very moment, and to highlight policy responses that bolster climate resilience for governments and for business alike. And I can tell you that this uh, is an area that we at the Atlanta Council are going to be focusing on in a major way even after uh, COP, uh, COP21. We're extremely lucky <clears throat> to have an all-star group of experts joining us uh, for this discussion. Judge Alice Hill, uh, who is a judge and has, uh, uh, now has a different career, has probably had a... Uh, a more, uh, I feel like we have something in common and that we've had very definitely random career paths. But uh, <clears throat> Judge Alice Hill uh, now serves as the Senior Director for Resilience Policy uh, at the National Security Council and previously worked extensively on climate resilience issues at the Department of Homeland Security. Sherry Goodman uh, is the president and CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership and a board director here at the Atlantic Council and has worked very closely with us. And she uh, previously served at the Pentagon as Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security. Alex Kaplan uh, is vice president of global partnerships at Swiss Re, where he advises governments, financial institutions, and NGOs on ways to respond uh, to climate changes uh, and climate challenges. Finally, our moderator for today's uh, discussion will be Valerie Volkovici, who's an energy and climate reporter at Reuters, and we're very happy to have her and all of the uh, uh, and, and all of our panel. So once again, we're pleased to see all of you here today. Uh, and as a final housekeeping note, you can join the conversation uh, on Twitter by utilizing hashtag ACEnergy. Uh, and the program will begin <coughs> with Alice Hill giving a, a 10 to 15 minute presentation on how she sees the issues. And then we'll have uh, all three with uh, Valerie moderating uh, on, uh, on the panel. So with that, I'll turn it over to Alice Hill. Thank you.
Thank you, Ambassador Morningstar, for the kind introduction. The Atlantic Council, through the Global Energy Center and the Scowcroft Center, have provided wonderful leadership on the challenging issue uh, that's at hand today, climate change, national security, and the global economy. I'm really delighted and honored to be a part of this distinguished panel. I love frozen yogurt. So yesterday, um, as I want to do, I stopped by my favorite frozen yogurt shop. The place was packed. Uh, and uh, as I paid, the owner said to me, it's 70 degrees outside in November. This is great for my business, but it's terrible for the world. And of course, in speaking about the temperature, he wasn't speaking about climate, but temperature over time and space is the climate. That's the trend. And he really uh, succinctly identified the problem here. This is very serious for the world. We are all observing what he has and what Ambassador Morningstar mentioned and what the climate scientists have confirmed. This is not a problem for 2100. This is a very serious problem now. Climate change impacts are here, they're accelerating, and they threaten our national security. Now, as Ambassador Morningstar mentioned, I am a former judge. I spent 13 years in Los, Los Angeles County. I was on the Los Angeles Superior Court. I was a supervising judge there. I heard thousands of cases, as you can imagine, as a trial judge. And as a trial judge, I routinely weighed scientific evidence in the courtroom. The evidence here is overwhelming. Climate change is happening now. We've seen 14 of the hottest years on record in the past 15 years. And the scientists are at least 97% sure that 2015 will be the hottest year on record. Seas have risen eight inches over the past century, and they are now rising at ever faster rates. The Greenland ice sheet is melting. That could cause, at a time undetermined, a 20-foot sea level rise. We have seen more extreme precipitation, more fires, and hotter heat waves. As my boss, Susan Rice, the President's National Security Advisor, recently put it, we're on a collision course with climate impacts that have inescapable implications for our national security. The U.S. will not be spared. Climate change directly threatens our prosperity and our safety. Indeed, since 2013, the Government Accounting Office has listed climate change as a top risk to federal assets, operations, and programs. In the West, the drought is in its fourth year. It's cost us billions in lost crops. This year, wildfires burned close to nine and a half million acres of land in the U.S., the most on record. In the Carolinas and Texas, we have seen record-setting rains and flooding, causing loss of life and destruction of property. 
There was enough rain in five days in the Carolinas to just about solve the multi-year drought in the West. Climate change poses systemic risks. Those risks can lead to breakdown of critical infrastructure, such as electricity, health, transportation, and emergency services. We witnessed a dramatic breakdown of infrastructure systems during the superstorm Sandy. With increased sea level rise came increased storm surge. That storm surge damaged our ability to generate electricity. Indeed, much of lower Manhattan plunged into darkness. Eight million people lost power, some for extensive periods of time. Without electricity, our transportation and health sectors began to fail. Over 6,000 patients had to be evacuated from hospitals. And as it turns out, you can't pump gas or fuel without electricity. So transportation stalled. Wastewater treatment failed. And that wastewater fouled many of our tunnels and subways. Property was severely damaged. Now, it's difficult to trace any particular weather event to climate change. But with warmer oceans, and you'll hear more about that from Sherry Goodman, and higher seas, we can identify expected trends. New York City can expect a sandy level flooding event to happen every 25 years. This year, the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report ranked extreme weather as the second most likely global risk to occur. It ranked water crises, and ultimately climate change is very much about water, too little or too much. It ranked water crises as the highest global risk in terms of impact. And the failure to adapt to climate change followed close behind in the rankings. When the Pentagon took a look at these issues, it unsurprisingly concluded in the Quadrennial Defense Review that climate change poses a significant challenge for the United States and the world at large. It noted, quote, the pressures caused by climate change will influence resource competition while placing additional burdens on economies, societies, and governance institutions around the world. The Department of Homeland Security in its quadrennial review stated that climate change trends aggravate stressors abroad that can enable terrorist activity and violence. Around the world, climate change in all likelihood increases the risk of instability and conflict. The consequences of climate change could significantly challenge not only already fragile governments, but also stable governments. Our military and security agencies have identified climate change as a threat multiplier. The term first coined by Sherry and the CNA Military Advisory Board, but has become accepted by many, many analysts in this field. And although we do not believe climate change is causing the conflicts we see around the world, Severe drought helped create the instability in Nigeria that was exploited by the terrorist group Boko Haram. 
Similarly, analysis shows that before civil war broke out, Syria was suffering from the worst drought on record. When crops failed, farmers moved into urban centers. Increasing political unrest unfolded. The genocide in Darfur began in part from a drought-driven conflict. Around the world, more than 100 million people live less than three feet above sea level on our coasts, including entire, entire island countries in the Caribbean, the Pacific, and the Indian Oceans. What are the impacts to the global economy, to our shared security, when people begin to move, as they will, when they can no longer farm, fish, herd livestock, or their country is simply drowned by rising seas? Climate change will also affect our national defense. In the words of President Obama, climate change will shape how every one of our military services plan, operate, train, equip, and protect their infrastructure today and for the long term. The Department of Defense expects the frequency, scale, and complexity of humanitarian assistance and disaster response missions to increase as climate change impacts increase. And I see Daniel Chu here. I'm sure he could share more about that with you. It also expects that climate change may affect its ability to carry out its missions successfully. Sea level rise threatens our military infrastructure just as it threatens our civilian infrastructure. Sea level rise, excuse me, in the Western United States, drought and heat impair currently use of military training grounds. This summer, it got so hot in the West that the military had to suspend training exercises. Now this is for really fit young men and women. It simply was too hot for them to train. At least one base is at risk for losing fresh water. We must also be concerned about the health risks climate change poses. How many of you have heard of chikungunya? Wow, well, you will be hearing of chikungunya. Uh, it's a very debilitating mosquito-borne disease. It, like West Nile disease, is growing more prevalent in the U.S. as we experience warming temperatures. It's also growing more prevalent in, for example, the Dominican Republic. India is still struggling with the worst outbreak of dengue fever in years. These health challenges cost billions of dollars to treat and contain. And of course, the suffering caused is really unfathomable. As the impacts of climate change accelerate, we will be challenged to recover from and absorb the inevitable disruptions. My work on the National Security Council focuses on resilience. With climate change, the past is no longer a reliable guide for the future. It can't tell us what we can expect. We can no longer look as we do with most of our building codes, our infrastructure, to the extremes of yesterday to help us decide what we should build today. We need to incorporate the projected impacts of climate change into the decisions we are making right now about where to repair, improve, 
put new infrastructure. We will need to adapt to the new conditions. We also need to communicate these risks so that our regions and our communities, climate change knows, does not appreciate our human-drawn jurisdictions. So we need to help communities, regions, understand the impacts that they will experience. We need to help them prepare for those impacts and then recover from the events when they occur rapidly and quickly. In other way, words, we need to find the most effective ways to build resilience. So what are we doing about the risks posed by climate change to our national security and our economy? President Obama has made climate change a defining imperative of both our foreign and our domestic policies. First, we are reducing our emissions and working hard to reach global agreement to take action to cut harmful emissions. Second, we've taken steps to prepare both here and abroad for the impacts of climate change. We've taken steps to make sure that that new infrastructure, the buildings, the roads, and the projects are built to withstand the impacts of climate change over the life of the project. And some of our infrastructure, for example, right here in Washington, D.C., dates from the Civil War, some of our drainage systems. So that was kudos to those civil engineers. I have to tell you, I think that's extraordinary. But with the amount of rain that's expected to fall, we can expect great stress on those systems. And as they're rebuilt, we have to incorporate the expected amounts of precipitation, the extreme precipitation, 20 inches in a short amount of time, where that water will go to avoid flooding. We've also worked with local communities to provide them with data and information, something they are uh, very loudly asking for to help them make the important decisions about what their communities need to do to prepare. We've identified best practices for the health sector so that they can build resiliently and make sure that they don't have to evacuate patients from the ICU units on the top floors of skyscrapers in Manhattan. We've analyzed the regional impacts of climate change to the energy sector so that we can begin the very hard work of making sure that we have a reliable energy supply during extreme events. And to help other nations prepare for the impacts, we've created a public-private partnership to provide climate services. Initially, we are focusing on Ethiopia, Bangladesh, and Colombia. We've also proposed a $3 billion green climate fund to help countries adapt to climate change. As the result of a presidential executive order, all international development projects will be screened for climate resilience. For our overseas investments to succeed in areas as diverse as eradicating malaria, building hydropower facilities, and developing transportation systems, those investments must take into account climate impacts like the shifting ranges of diseases that we are seeing in the world with mosquitoes life cycle changing as well as their territory changing, changing water availability and rising sea levels. As Ambassador Morningstar mentioned, just a few weeks from now, international leaders will gather in Paris to finalize a post-2020 agreement for climate change. And thanks to American leadership, we are in a position to achieve a meaningful agreement. 
Paris must deliver a long-term framework that ratchets down future emissions over time. Paris must also support poor countries while they continue developing on the low-carbon trajectory. We are at a critical juncture. As President Obama has said, there is such a thing as being too late. We need to find common ground for fighting climate change. We need to act now to reduce the effects of climate change by rapidly cutting our carbon emissions. That's the only way we can avert disaster scenarios, even as we must adapt to the impacts that we can no longer avoid. Time is of the essence. We will need everyone's commitment to help ensure that we leave a healthy planet. And I think the people in this room can help in a very meaningful way. If you have not done so already, take the time to study the risks. Determine for yourself whether the World Economic Forum got it right. If you're concerned about global prosperity and security and have not done so already, Educate yourself so that you can help others, including policymakers who don't fully comprehend these risks, understand how truly urgent the threats are. Read the National Climate Assessment, as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report on Adaptation, if you haven't done so. They describe catastrophic potential impacts if we continue on a business-as-usual course. And by the way, these were consensus documents. So that means that every person agreed, every participant agreed on every single word in those executive summaries. I leave you to ponder what your experience has been with consensus and the fact that we have had many instances where these reports underestimated the impacts. Increased engagement by leading thinkers on this issue can make a difference in understanding the risks, communicating the gravity and immediacy of the risk, and helping inform policies to reduce the risk. In the words of President Obama, we have a moral obligation to get this right. We owe it to our children and those who will come after us. And as the president has also noted, the Pentagon says that climate change poses immediate risks to our national security. We should act like it. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Well, thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to see so many uh, good friends in the audience. I want to thank the Atlantic Council very much for organizing this event. I think it's critical that organizations like the Atlantic Council um, are elevating the importance 
of climate change resilience and national security. This is just the right place to do it. Thank you to Dick Morningstar and your leadership on the Global Energy Center. Thank you to Dan Chu, who provided great leadership in the Pentagon and is now here, also providing great leadership here. And it's a great team here. I, I'm very proud of the team and proud to be a board member and affiliated with it. And uh, we should all recognize one of the great leaders of this field who's joined us today, uh, Senator John Warner, uh, with whom I've had the privilege to sail on many of these rough seas over the last decade, Senator. And he has been at this since the beginning uh, with a distinguished career in the Senate uh, and as Secretary of the Navy and has dedicated uh, his personal efforts uh, to leadership in this field. And we are forever grateful, Senator. And Alice, you just prevent, presented a tour de force on this. Uh, we are all very proud of that work. The President, uh, S uh, Susan Rice, and others, anyone who listens to your um, terrific um, oratory and your great way of explaining and expressing not only what the facts on the ground and on the CR, but also what we need to do about it. So, um, you know, many, many of you will know me as someone who actually gave birth to this field of climate security about a decade ago. And I'm, I am, uh, of course, continuing to be troubled, as many of you are, by the effects that we continue to see unfold, but at the same time very heartened uh, by the way that uh, we have in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world begun to organize and mobilize and create new communities of practice like climate security or new industries um, like resilience. And I know Alex will talk about chief resilience officers. And so I see this, the tentacles of the solution set, not only defining the problem, but the future solutions and how we can change really coming together in a way. Hopefully it will be, uh, we, we won't be too late because the risks are very serious. Um, now we've talked a lot about the, uh, we talk a lot about the energy climate nexus. That's, I think, how Dick kind of got started in this venture here at the Atlantic Council. And now, you know, many talk about the food, energy, water nexus as well. Well, I, I want to introduce you today because I'm, I'm here in a relatively new hat heading an organization called the Consortium for Ocean Leadership, which, uh, whose members are the major ocean science research institutions uh, in the U.S. and, and globally. I want to introduce you to the ocean climate nexus. So, you know, the oceans, of course, are 71% of the Earth's surface, and they are really the heartbeat of the planet. And, the, you know, the oceans drive our weather and climate through the global transfer of heat and water. And the oceans are really at the heart of our response to climate change. Um, the ocean is the dominant player in the climate system. It's great at storing heat, but that means it's warming. And warmer sea surface temperatures mean more evaporation, more moisture released from the air in severe weather events like those we experienced in the southeast earlier this month. These events are our, our new reality and a new normal. So the ocean is also great at absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, but this process is increasingly altering the ocean's pH. And many organisms will struggle to survive in a warmer and more acidic ocean which will be catastrophic throughout the food web and for our own food supply. That's what's coming. So to build a resilient society, um, we need also to understand the oceans, and we need to understand those impacts. 
Now, the oceans are our global commons, and in many ways, they are the last unexplored frontier. Oceanographers always like to tell me, well, you know, we are the last unexplored frontier, but NASA always gets all the money. Um, so, you know, we need, we are trying to bring more visibility and attention to what's happening in the oceans, and there is a growing information gap about the oceans. I'm not sure I'd compare it to the missile gap of the 50s, but it is what, and it's one that requires cooperation, not competition, to resolve. We are about to enter the era of global ocean observations, global ocean observations, where we'll be able to observe and monitor the oceans in new ways. Later this year, the U.S. will begin to operate an ocean observing system that's been uh, under construction for a number of years that will provide key data for global ocean observing. And it's linked to other global systems that are under development too. Why does this matter? Okay, so why? You know, it matters because we need these observations both for research and because we're a global society dependent on the ocean for so much, our food, our weather, transportation, security, and much more. We need more robust models that integrate ocean clim oceans, climate, and social science data, and we need the political will to prioritize these needs and the international collaboration across the board to accomplish them. Uh, if you're following the road to Paris and COP21, you may not actually hear that much about the oceans in, in sort of public statements about that, but it is a growing, but, but Secretary Kerry, when he t begins to talk about uh, why we need to be pay attention to climate change and why we need to unlock the uh, unleash the market forces for a clean energy economy starts by documenting what's happening in our oceans. So two quick uh, two quick examples. Uh, first, the deep sea. Consider how the ocean is a flywheel for climate change and works in the deep sea. So you know the average depth of the ocean is 3,600 meters and it can be as deep as 11,000 meters, but we have little to no routine measurement below 2,000 meters today. So we need this baseline for understanding how much heat the ocean is taking up and how deep in the ocean this is occurring, which has major implications for ecosystems, ocean productivity, think fish and other sources, circulation and sea level rise. On top of all of this, most of the deep ocean is beyond areas of national jurisdiction, uh, but the negative effects of climate-related change in the deep sea will affect all of us. Second coastal case study, Hampton Roads, Virginia, uh, where the U.S. government, thanks in part to leadership by Alice uh, and also at the Pentagon, have launched the first climate resilience pilot project to address sea level rise and routine flooding. I'm sure Dan was involved in that as well. That prevents, the routine flooding prevents employees at some of the local military installations from getting to work during heavy rains. So they can't perform their mission critical jobs because uh, heavy rains and flooding is blocking their access to the base. This region with a combination of um, uh, natural subsidence, uh, sea level rise, and other coastal impacts, it's a natural laborator laboratory for regional coastal resilience, uh, regional coastal resilience and the research and development we need to do on this. This effort will require a whole of government approach that integrates various federal and state agencies, educational institutions, local stakeholders, and community planners. 
in what will soon become the next era of land use planning, really resilience planning for vibrant communities in the 21st century. And I think this serves as a good model. Uh, you see many in Virginia organizing now uh, to, to bring, those, uh, bring, bring those efforts to bear and to bring together the forces to make this a really important effort. So the effects of climate change on the ocean and the changing ocean's impact on humanity are already occurring. As Alice noted, uh, we see this in various, uh, as a threat multiplier across the board. Uh, we begin to see our first climate refugees already. Um, there's a Kiribati citizen who's claimed status in New Zealand. Um, and many officials now are beginning to deal with the geopolitical impacts of this. So there will be displaced persons, climate refugees, eventually possibly even the disappearance of small islands and states who have begun to organize globally to get the world to address these larger impacts. We, we need to be able to understand those impacts, uh, the impact on economic resilience, national security, as well as who is going to address uh, the changing uh, changing population demographics. Who should be responsible to assist, care, relocate these populations uh, when places like Kiribati, which are facing saltwater intrusion and inundation impacting their agriculture, transportation, residential areas, and water supply, as well as health impacts, lose their homeland. So these are some of the difficult questions that are at the heart of the nexus of climate change, ocean security, and economy. Having sustained broad observation systems globally deployed will provide us a deeper and better understanding of the ocean as it drives the climate system. And this will help us to begin to forecast thresholds and needs and eventually indicators and warning. So if coupled with the political will, these can ultimately arm the world's policymakers with the tools to stem the climate accelerants while mitigating the inescapable changes humanity not only will witness, but experience firsthand in coming years. Thank you very much. Now Alex Kaplan will deliver some short remarks. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Those are two uh, tough acts to follow. Dan, I, you and I haven't met, but apparently I'm supposed to know you. <laughs> so we should meet after this, okay. Uh, just so by a quick show of hands, how many people have a good sense of what reinsurance is? Better than I expected. That's good to hear. Uh, so to the, the briefest explanation I can give for those that don't is, is it's insurance for insurance companies. Uh, Swiss Re is 151 years old. And as the global aggregator of risk that collects the exposure of insurance companies around the globe, we have to have a very good understanding of these risks and how they evolve over time. So we don't look at the next hurricane, we have to look at events and shocks 50 to 100 years down the road. And to put a finer point on some of the economic numbers uh, that were mentioned before, um, I wanna show you why this is so important to us uh, as an industry. Maybe, maybe not, there we go. So the cost of disasters is increasing over time. That's not a secret to anybody that's in this room. What the alarming trend is that we're noticing 
is the diverging gap between the dark blue on the bottom and the light blue at the top. That's the difference between the insured losses and the global economic losses. And the trend is splitting. So on average, 70% of global economic losses are uninsured. And that falls on the back of society as a whole. That falls on the back of citizens, of governments, and of corporations. And this is exactly what we're trying to wrap our minds around, is how do we end up closing this protection gap? Let's just talk about one outlier year. 2011, $403 billion worth of economic losses from events around the globe. That includes the Japan earthquake, Christchurch as well. Only $126 billion was covered by the insurance industry, which means $277 billion fell on the back of the rest of society. And guess who gets to pay for that? Everybody here, right? So climate change is obviously uh, an important consideration, and that is something that we're watching very closely, and as Alice pointed out, we can't attribute any single event to climate change. Uh, but what's really driving the losses, these lost jump, uh, jumps, is the change in exposure. On the top of the screen, you have a picture of Shanghai in 1990. At the bottom, you have a picture of Shanghai in 2013, taken from the exact same location, 23 years apart. The massive accumulation of wealth and assets in the most disaster-prone areas of the world are what are driving these economic losses to completely unsustainable levels. Oop, that wasn't me. So, I just dwell on that for a second, right? The only discernible difference in there is the Huangpu River, which runs to the center of the city. So why do we care as an industry? So Swiss Re established a team about uh, five or six years ago, and understanding that, again, the overwhelming majority of the losses falls on the back of society. I'm really having trouble with this clicker, guys. Here we go. So we set up a team recognizing that if you look at these economic losses, that there's something that the insurance industry needs to do a better job of, right? This protection gap is, is a failure of our industry, and we need to figure out how we reduce the impacts to society. So Swiss Re set up a team, which I'm on, uh, based here in Washington, D.C., to work exclusively with governments and international financial organizations like the World Bank to help identify, quantify, and then ultimately transfer that exposure off the back of society, off the back of taxpayers, and move it into the private market. That can be everything from the, the cost of an earthquake or the impacts of climate change, but also looking at health risk, looking at longevity, the fact that people are living longer, and the stress that puts on pension systems on a global scale. Everything from hurricane risk in Florida to rice, uh, rice farmers in Vietnam, to energy production shortfalls uh, as a result of drought in, uh, in uh, Uruguay, and even working with the US government, with uh, USAID, to provide drought, drought climate insurance for dairy farmers in the Dominican Republic. So I want to talk about the economics of climate adaptation. This is just a microcosm of the kind of things that Swiss Re is working on, and just a, a glimpse of what the private sector is thinking about. We all talk about climate change, we talk about two degrees Celsius, we talk about four feet of sea level rise, and those numbers mean little to people other than the scientists that perhaps came up with those numbers. So how do we, how do we put this in terms that means, uh, is impactful to the people that we're trying to reach? Put it in, in economic terms, right? Put it in dollar terms. So Swiss Re, along with its partners, um, McKinsey, Rockefeller Foundation, and a bunch of others, developed this methodology, which gives decision makers the tools necessary to, to make determinations about the, the actions that they should be taking to reduce their risk. 
right? So decision makers are asking, I think somebody else is clicking for me, are you? Okay, there we go. Um, so what are the potential climate-related uh, damages over the coming decades, right? What does it look like today? What, what will it look like in 2050 from an economic scale? Uh, how much of that damage can we avert through mitigation, through adaptation, and then with, with what measures, and then ultimately what investments can be made to uh, divert those uh, losses, right? The question you ask yourself is, if I build a $10 billion seawall, will I save at least $10 billion in related climate impacts over the lifetime of that investment? So now we can clearly make a decision. Should we do this or should we not? Next slide. Thanks. So let's look at New York City. Right after Hurricane Sandy, Mayor Bloomberg asked us to do an analysis of the climate risks to the city of New York. And what we found out after doing an analysis of all the city's assets spread across the five bureaus, boroughs, we figured out that New York City on an annualized basis loses $1.7 billion every single year as a result of climate-related events. And if they do nothing, by the year 2050, they will lose $4.4 billion. This does not even look at economic growth. Bloomberg specifically asked us not to consider that. We just want to look pu purely at, uh, at the climate impacts. And you can see the uh, risk increases by 168% over that time period. Next slide. But we're not doing this alone. Swiss Re is not the only one. We obviously care. We, we end up writing the big checks, so we, we care a lot. Um, companies around the globe in preparation for Paris um, are, are also taking actions themselves. Uh, an initiative that was launched at Climate Week uh, back in September is something called RE100. The largest companies around the globe are committing to move to 100% renewable energy uh, over the next couple of years. We co-founded it with IKEA. And Swiss Re is already about 80% uh, based on renewal, renewable energy, and we intend to be at 100% by uh, 2020. And we've been climate neutral, uh, carbon neutral, I should say, uh, since 2007. Uh, but you can see a couple of the big companies on the bottom. These are, these are global powers in, in, in many respects, right? Uh, Walmart, Goldman Sachs, Johnson & Johnson, a lot of these companies with major manufacturing operations, which uh, makes it a little more, more challenging. Uh, but just to give you a sense of that industry, private sector is taking this very seriously. They want to be using renewable energy. They want to lead cleaner lives. Um, and through initiatives like this, we can sort of drive the conversation in developing markets where re uh, renewable energy may not be available. Um, and so we're hoping with initiatives like this that that will become a reality. Thank you. Thank you all for your presentations. They were very informative, maybe a little bit terrifying, but extremely important to, uh, to hear. Uh, so I'd like to start my first question, uh, since we are just weeks away from the Paris Climate Talks. I'd like to ask you how you think a new global climate agreement, how will the architecture actually help address um, adaptation? The focus has, has been, as Ambassador Morningstar has said, on mitigation thus far. Um, how, how will the Paris Climate Talks help put the focus on adaptation, and how will the goal of $100 billion per year that uh, developed countries will mobilize to, to help developing countries, how uh, can a deal ensure the money is spent correctly and there are proper mechanisms to make sure that uh, a poor country that doesn't necessarily have the systems in place can use that money in the right way? Um, I don't know if anyone wants to start. 
start with well, Alice. first and foremost, if we have success uh, in Paris, uh, it will cut our emissions, uh, which will mean that we um, suffer fewer impacts. So that is critical. Anyone who works on the resilience side, uh, eventually, as you look at the impacts that are projected and the acceleration of impacts, concludes that we definitely need to figure out ways to successfully cut harmful emissions so that we don't have to cope with the impacts that are projected. Um, and secondarily, uh, our hope is that we uh, provide uh, the funding that, as I've mentioned, there's the uh, $3 billion Green Climate Fund designed uh, in part to help countries adapt, uh, and then also the collective pledge of $100 billion. Uh, and our goal is that those uh, we will help share the knowledge that we have. One of the fascinating things about working in this area is that it's unfolding so quickly that uh, there are lessons to be shared across the globe. Uh, a uh, country uh, without the resources of the United States may have uh, better information about how to deal with a particular impact than we do because they've been working with it on the ground. Uh, so all of this will unfold as it is unfolding here in the United States. We are literally uh, having to address things that we include calculations that we've never done before, uh, but we are improving uh, as we speak, and I anticipate we'll follow that iterative model as we go forward and work with countries to make sure that they have adequate preparation for what is already uh, projected to come, and then, of course, as our emissions continue as business as usual, will accelerate. Anyone else have any thoughts? Okay. Um, also, we the word climate resilience, is it's a fairly new term, and I think it means different things to different people. So, um, I would, I mean, maybe it would be helpful if you could give us examples from the military, from the government, um, working with local governments on how to help build their climate resilience. And Alex, um, if a local government is approaching you and they say, we need, a, we need to develop an adaptation plan, where do you begin? And what are their misconceptions and what are their resources? Uh, well, resources is always the first challenge. <laughs> They all, they're all, they're all uh, strapped budgets. But I think they start asking the right questions, similar to what, what Mayor Bloomberg did, is, is sort of, you know, what does our world look like? Uh, what does it look like today? What does it look like tomorrow? And then that provides me with the tools necessary to influence other decision makers. Um, and I think that once they sort of uh, are be able to sort of Put uh, some boundaries around what those what those possibilities are. Then they can then they can start taking some actions. Well, uh, if you take the uh, military for example, uh, when you talk about considering resilience for the U the U.S. or really any military, you just need to take the factors and apply it across the board uh, in every element of what the military does. First from its strategy and its planning documents. And you've seen that. Most of you who follow this have seen the, now the National Security Strategy and the Quadrennial Defense Review actually includes thoughtful analysis on climate change, thanks to Dan Chu and others. And then planning documents for actual operational war plans or exercises also need to include uh, climate impacts. And that is beginning to be, be done in the same way that energy 
uh, in recent years has been practiced as a, considered as a variable. We used to assume um, in the military that you always had as much energy as you needed to get to whatever the fight was. And once war planners began to actually consider that we might not have um, all of the fuel that we needed to get our forces to the front, new innovations were, have been developed to actually power our forces differently. And you see the military has moved out very smartly in recent years to develop a whole new mix of, of biofuels and other clean fuels to uh, have more diversity in our, in our fuel supply. At the same time, we need to consider the impacts of climate on the health and readiness of our force. So as Alice said, you know, there are these new diseases that have either spread to new areas, dengue fever among the, she mentioned, uh, what's the chicks? Chikungunya. Chikungunya. We used to talk about schistosomiasis and some other diseases that the military had encountered only in very remote locations, but in the last decade or so, uh, are encountered in much, uh, in, in much greater areas. So we need to be prepared to protect our troops. Um, we need to be prepared as, uh, you know, for the fact that they may not be able to tr even train, even in parts of the U.S., under all of the weather, weather conditions. And then it's the impacts on our military installations, which is most readily apparent. The military's already evaluated a number of installations for the impacts of sea level rise. Uh, and then building into military construction projects, um, one needs to factor in how, what, you know, what are those standards? Uh, how should uh, construction projects, whether it's a new building or a new water treatment plant, uh, what standards should they be resilient to over how many years? And uh, how are we going to operate in some of our key critical, re from our key critical installations in places like Norfolk, Virginia, uh, when they are subject to uh, extreme weather and sea level rise? And else within the federal agencies? Sure, uh, I would uh, agree with you. Re the term resilience has exploded. Uh, it's in my title, but uh, it's definitely exploded in recent years. At one point I got interested uh, simply because I had noticed the explosion uh, and researched it. It appears as best as I could determine to stem, uh, come from the civil engineering world. And that was a concept that was popular uh, a number of years ago. Uh, the more I work in this area, uh, it's, there are multiple definitions, multiple definitions within the federal government, definitions also in the private sector, and they don't all match up perfectly. Uh, but if you step back, ultimately this is about risk management, um, and uh, that is what we're trying to do. Uh, the reinsurers are very much focused on risk, and that is really what the Department of Defense, DHS, the White House, how do we reduce the impacts from these risks, and then how do we respond in a way that makes sure that we have a less of a hit uh, to our economy and that we're back up and going very quickly. So uh, you can define it many ways, but I think as you, uh, we, a community uh, gathers around this term, it's ultimately we're talking about risk and how do we can manage it. We can't control it, but we can manage it. Um, in the climate discussions, uh, one concept that is, uh, that's been in the talks is the concept of loss and damage, which is that industrialized countries have, will have some financial responsibility to, uh, to compensate for the damages caused to, de to developed, uh, country, developing countries uh, due to climate change and uh, environmental degradation. Do you, do you think we'll see in the future 
lawsuits where a developing country can sue a government or a company? Are we going to see more of the tables turning? Um, we have a refugee crisis stemming from climate change. How, how, how will the responsibility be taken in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, when you started the question, I was thinking that in some ways we already are paying, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about international you know, aid. So much of that is to go to clean up and repair and recover from disasters that have already occurred. So outside of even the, the Paris conversations or where this conversation's uh, ultimately going, in terms of the liability, I, I won't comment on sovereign immunity and international courts and things like that. I think there's somebody else on the panel that's probably uh, better at that than I. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely something that we have to have to consider. Um, not only sort of the property damage side, but then the the, the liability, the legal liability of the, those impacts, and and how those get passed throughout various parts of of society, and particularly in the business world. Um, companies definitely have to get a grasp of, of, of what that exposure is for them, and then figure out how they're going to mitigate that. I don't, I, I don't know about uh, litigation between states, but I am a former judge uh, and a lawyer. And I can tell you that there's already been uh, litigation. You can anticipate uh, that there'll be litigation over property uh, boundaries. Uh, and uh, as sea level changes, uh, lands eroded, uh, there'll be disputes there determining uh, ownership. And also, fascinatingly, in France, there was a criminal prosecution. I'm a former criminal prosecutor. Uh, a mayor and uh, the town clerk in a uh, town, I believe it's on the uh, Normandy coast, uh, were issuing building permits in an area that was known for flood risk. Uh, they issued a number, and homes were built. A terrible storm, Zynthia, came through, and many people died. Uh, and there was a criminal prosecution for the mayor and the mayor's assistant, and they were found guilty, uh, essentially for allowing development to occur in a risk-prone area. I have no opinion as to whether that will occur elsewhere, but I thought it was interesting uh, because the courts move more slowly. I can speak with a lot of experience. Uh, but eventually, our disputes, uh, we hope, land in courts for resolution, so there will be disputes as to how the land was used, uh, what was known, uh, and I anticipate that that will be uh, something our courts will have to contend with as we go forward. There is a, a domestic anecdote which I think could have implications in the, in the global context. Um, even within the last two years, there was a publicly traded company in the United States that filed a lawsuit against the state in which it's headquartered for failure to take action on the climate commitments that they had made in, within that state. Now, this, the, the lawsuit was withdrawn. I think it sent a strong message that, that society, that companies, that individuals have expectations that the governments that are making commitments are going to live up to them. A question for Sherry. Um, this year, uh, the United States is, uh, holds the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. So what are the opportunities there to, uh, to make leaps and bounds on, uh, on research and then uh, to deal with some of the geopolitical issues, if the tricky political geo. Right. Well, uh, thank, you. thank you for that question. So the, uh, you know, the U.S. is chairing the Arctic Council now over the next, uh, next two years. The president recently was in the Arctic. I think Alice was, uh, was on the trip with him. Uh, and, and for the first time, you know, a U.S. president has uh, put a spotlight 
on uh, what's happening in the Arctic and the importance of and how climate is changing the Arctic. So there are many, many opportunities both to increase global awareness and visibility, uh, have climate change is really occurring more rapidly in the Arctic than anywhere else on the planet. And you can see that um, both in a combination of sea level rise, warmer temperatures, less sea ice that will allow um, in, you know, within our lifetimes probably transit through both the Northwest Passage and the Northern Sea Route. Uh, some are anticipating and eventually even being able to take a polar route across, uh, directly across the pole so that, uh, you know, you have, for example, Senator, not only senators from Alaska, but senators from the East Coast of the United States, like Senator King of Maine, declaring I'm the East Coast Arctic Senator uh, because once the Arctic changes, Eastport, Maine is going to be the deepest port uh, close to the Arctic on the East Coast. So there, some see commercial opportunities there as well. Uh, and of course, it's affecting the lives of uh, Native Alaskans uh, and the indigenous people. I had the privilege of being up in Barrow earlier this year. In fact, I was in the Arctic both in Barrow and in Norway and Svalbard, and you can see uh, how those changes are occurring rapidly, affecting the lifestyles of the indigenous people, certainly in our own, in our own Arctic, uh, and then the changes occurring uh, as nations begin to prepare for uh, either more energy development, mineral opportunities, or the Russians who have the largest uh, percentage of Arctic coastline for economic energy and other transportation development. And uh, it's an area that's getting a lot more scrutiny from its geopolitics uh, as the uh, Russian Russia develops an uh, Arctic infrastructure, a military command uh, that's newly formed. Uh, and, and it's an area that requires continued, you know, watching and, and sensitivity. It's an area that uh, we uh, hope stays cold and that it's colder and not become a hot war between the two nations. Uh, but there are those, those tensions uh, and we, we, have to be, we have to really be careful there. It's, a, it's an area where we need a lot of cooperation in things like search and rescue and oil spill prevention because as you see more human activity in the Arctic, there will inevitably be some kind of um, incident or accident. Fortunately, the Coast Guards of all the Arctic nations have come together uh, to develop methods of cooperation and even to begin to exercise uh, various plans together, which is, is very hopeful, but it's also a sign, of course, of the increasing risks on the horizon. Okay. I think now we're going to take some questions from the audience, so if there's a microphone. And uh, I'll just ask uh, anyone who asks a question to state your name um, and your affiliation, and also make it a question. <laughs> this gentleman over here. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Georges Mihais. I'm a member for UNESCO Task Force since 2000. Uh, I was involved with small island states. Uh, so the work has been conducted, documented, and a lot of work has been done. And that's why everything you said today is very relevant. Um, I try to address your second or third question, international cooperation. I would recommend to the United States for Paris. Uh, generally speaking, we have to move from militant mood to implement the mood today. So the last two years, I collected a 
technologies to see whether it's feasible to have results in the next three years, maximum five years, in the mitigation and resilience enhancement. And America is a leader in those technologies ready today, under test today, and which could bring result. My recommendation, if I may uh, put it this way, is America should take the initiative at, in Paris to form a task force to take applicable technologies and solutions today. I, I can be more, I can elaborate on small islands. I used to be involved also with Okinawa, but to have implementation actions, measurable one, not in five years only, in one year, two years, what are those technologies? And how to involve local communities from very small islands to larger ones or coastal area. Only America can do it, both in terms of entrepreneurship and so on. And this can be measured today. There are technologies, indoor air quality fertilizer from chemical to natural and so on. They are okay. measurable today. Thank okay. you. Um, does anyone have another question? The gentleman back there. Sorry, and then there. Hi, Jack Gokey, and I'm with Marsha McLennan Companies. Um, yesterday, I was in a, involved in a conversation with Secretary Johnson, uh, Secretary of D Department of Homeland Security, and we were talking about sort of very similar framework of discussion, but it was about cyber risk. And one of the topics that came up was the use of market forces that already exist to create and, and impact uh, the causality of risk. And so thinking about climate change, the things that are going on, um, what are some of the ideas that you have in how market forces can be harnessed to impact companies' behavior, nation state behavior around uh, climate change? And so using insurance as a tool to uh, enforce standard adherence, et cetera. What are some of the things that you think could be done that are not being done now? Well, let me uh, share a few things that are, uh, are currently happening. We, uh, as part of the President's Climate Action Plan, we did uh, convene uh, insurers and reinsurers uh, in, uh, and have continued our contacts with them to uh, be in discussions of how we can best share uh, risk data um, as well as uh, best practices. Um, so uh, in my re resilience directorate, we have uh, taken this for right now. Uh, we are looking at codes and standards. Um, and this is in the United States, but there is no federal building code. Uh, all of our codes are state or local codes. Um, and uh, as I described, we've got impacts coming that require us to build more resiliently. So one way that we can help drive that is through insisting that when federal monies are taken, it will be built to a more resistance, uh, resilient standard. We've done that with the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard. Uh, it, will, it took the work that was done after Sandy. They pretty much said we're going to build higher after Sandy, and then we studied that, uh, determined an, through an interagency process, appropriate levels, including taking into account the impacts of climate change. Uh, and uh, we are looking at other areas where we can do the same to incentivize appropriate behavior here in the United States within the communities to signal 
your building code may be too low for what's really, you're not, it's not accurately reflecting the risk. And so if you want to take federal money when you rebuild from an event or you're just building infrastructure and we're participating, it's going to be built better. So, uh, so Swiss Re last year at the UN Climate Summit committed $10 billion of our own capital to help governments around the globe address climate adaptation challenges. And that's in terms of insurance capacity, sort of to your point. Um, and, and we're going along in that, and there are others following in that space. But I would say that the greatest impediment to success is two problems. Uh, one is risk perception, and the second is risk ownership. The fact of the matter is, is that whether it's an individual, a company, or a government, they all underestimate what they're exposed to. And that changes their behavior. And they don't react appropriately. The second is risk ownership. And, and the United States is, is, is a good example where this, is, where this is, a, is a problem, is that everyone assumes that somebody else is going to bail them out when the bad thing happens. Right? The individual points to the county. The county points to the state. The state points to the federal government, and so on. And if the risk isn't owned by the person that is bearing it, You'll, we'll never make progress on this. Um, at least that's, that's my view. Um, and so we have to do a better job, whether that's through functions like FEMA, the National Flood Insurance Program, the Disaster Risk uh, uh, Relief Fund, but also it's, you know, this is the case in other governments as well, of course. Um, you you got to place the ownership of the risk where the risk belongs, and that will force behavioral change. And then all this capital that's sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed will come rushing into the market. And, uh, and I promise that you know, private industry will find ways to make this a profitable uh, commercial venture. So what do you think that's going to change the, this risk perception um, and, and risk ownership is having the right kind of information in order to make decisions? Today, you know, we make decisions based on weather that we can accurately predict about out to about a week. So we have uh, a, you know, a hurricane prediction capacity. But what we lack today is the ability to accurately predict beyond a week from the week to two or three months time frame. We are getting closer largely as a result of having ocean observations because it's the air-sea interaction and what's happening in the oceans and the interaction with the atmosphere that is going to enable a full up Earth system prediction capability that will eventually enable us to have um, a, a, uh, a weather, you know, today we have the weather service, but eventually we will have a sort of climate, whether it's a climate service or we'll have other kinds of capability that actually become commercialized uh, that provide a broader range of data out from this one week to two months time frame. And that's going to enable a whole range of additional risk planning uh, that's not possible today. And then companies and other actors, governments, will be able to internalize that in their own decision making processes. Senator Warner had a question. First, Sherry, thank you very much for your remarks on the oceans. Will there be any reference specifically to oceans policy? in the final communique or resolution coming from the forthcoming Paris talks. That's my question to you. And also, I'd like to visit with you in the Virginia delegation as we conclude here. Secondly, to you, uh, Judge Hill, 
do you see in the current funding scramble going on in the Congress any appropriations that will help you implement some of the very laudatory goals that the Obama administration has set, particularly with its departments of uh, state, energy, defense, and the like? Thank you, Senator, uh, for that question. I certainly hope that there will be statements in the final document on uh, the o uh, ocean climate nexus. And uh, in fact, we signed and released just two weeks ago uh, a, a broad-based statement on the ocean climate nexus uh, that was uh, released by the European Marine Board and the Consortium for Ocean Leadership, my organization, representing uh, hundreds of ocean oceanographers and ocean scientists on both sides of the Atlantic. I provided some copies out, out front there, and this statement basically has uh, calls for recognition of the importance of the oceans uh, by the leaders at COP21 and for a focus on the need for additional ocean science research and observations as a way better to understand and predict the world around us. Thank you, Senator. Uh, and thank you, Senator. Resilience, uh, if you uh, trace through our budgets, uh, you will see it's been a growing concern and the, this administration has called it out. Uh, for example, we know we've talked a lot about uh, the need for communities to be able to plan and understand uh, their risks. Uh, so we've uh, requested repeatedly monies to go do the kind of pilot that we did at Hampton Roads, uh, where we shared what our data shows for a particular region, uh, what they should plan for and can anticipate to help the, um, uh, all the leaders uh, come to a joint vision on what the risks are and then start down the hard path of making the choices about risk management. So it is a continued focus for us, so thank you. Front row. Yes. Uh, thank you, speakers, for a very interesting uh, briefing. My name is Paula Stern. I'm on the Executive Council of the Atlantic Council uh, and also on the Secretary of Commerce's Renewable Energy Advisory Committee. And I am, I'd like to go back to your first questioner. I didn't hear an answer and uh, try to provoke you further. Uh, particularly with regard to the role of the U.S. military uh, in procurement uh, of particularly advanced technologies by uh, entrepreneurs, American and otherwise. Um, and I, I have had an experience um, uh, with one particular company called Sierra Energy, which has this gasification, fast ox gasification, waste to renewable energy. And you mentioned emissions. and. Uh, and I thought of China, and we've had this new headline about their coal plants and the coal uh, uh, announcements and numbers. But there's a, they are so deeply involved in huge investments in incineration plants, which are old technology, which could be, it seems to me, uh, something that we ought to embrace even further. The U.S. military is, is using some of this fast ox gasification technology. But it's our military who are going to be the ones who are going to drive the first, second, and third years of the new technology. And I'm wondering if there is a way of, if you will, tying in what the military is doing, kind of buried in their you know, uh, new construction maintenance 
um, and, and, and what we as a nation, an innovative nation, should be doing with regard to um, uh, these uh, reductions. So I really do like this entrepreneurial idea. And uh, I know it gets kind of stomped down because small is always very difficult to operate with very large organizations like US military, US government, or all these different countries pulled together. But I'd, I'd, I'd like to uh, elicit, at least from you thinkers, um, uh, if you think there is a role for smaller yeah. technologies to really beef them up. Yeah, no, I absolutely do, Paula, and uh, I absolutely. When I, when I was in DOD 20 years ago, we facing a slightly different set of, pro of challenges than um, a lot about cleaning up military bases at the time. Yeah. We created a, uh, a, a technology demonstration program that would enable one to carry through from the R&D phases in the laboratory and actually test the technologies for dealing with complicated waste streams and do it in conjunction with stakeholders, whether they were federal or state regulators or community leaders or activists or, or citizens, so that you would get buy-in. And then once you have that and validation, you can get uptake, commercial uptake, because the problem was trying to get uh, carry through the actual acquisition chain when you don't have a weapon system at the end, but you want to actually have a cleanup technology. Right. Now, and that program still exists. It's got the awkward name of Environmental Security Technology Certification Program. It's companion created by my former boss, Senator Sam Nunn, uh, the Strategic Environmental Research and Development Program. Uh, those are tri-agency programs that are run out of DOD with EPA and the Department of Energy. In the last decade, they've been used to spur investments in clean energy for the military. Uh, and so that's been very useful as well, because the military has really become, a US military, a leader in clean energy technologies. Exactly. And they've also done, you know, to your question about using the small island states, and back to the questioner, you know, there's been interest um, through our Pacific Command uh, to use a number, to work with small island nations and also U.S. territories in the Pacific who have, you know, very challenging issues of energy in remote locations with small populations uh, to be able to use some innovative technologies uh, and test out and do pilot partnerships that benefit not only uh, their economy but also help strengthen relationships so there's a broader strategic purpose. And I think it's very possible, back to your uh, to the gentleman's uh, question that uh, there could be sort of resilience technology pilots of some type um, that are kind of the next generation from environmental technologies to clean energy. Now, you know, there are a number of sort of resilient technologies that are emerging. And this is a whole uh, a field that uh, the private sector, insurance companies, uh, but also, you know, other governments might be able to to join in as uh, in investments uh, that show returns within a few years. Okay, we have time for one last question. Um, not sure who held up their hand the longest. Uh, Maybe like, take, take a couple and then just okay. Um, <laughs> you can the panel will be here afterwards if you have additional questions. Um, I uh, third row. Thank you very much to the distinguished panel for such impressive ideas exposed. I'm Sabine Popescu from Romanian Embassy here in Washington, D.C. I would like to address a question to Judge Hill. 
If you are optimistic regarding uh, reaching some kind of conclusions and signing some agreements in Paris in the near future, and uh, what would be, in your opinion, the main obstacles that could undermine such kind of process? Thank uh, you very much. I am uh, very optimistic. I think that the United States has um, been very forward-leaning. We had the historic agreement with China, um, and uh, I think we are defining a path forward. Um, I think that uh, this is um, a very difficult issue for the world. Um, so I, I couldn't even list, I think, what the challenges are. But I can tell you we have a crack negotiating team. Uh, they have been working extremely hard at this behind the scenes uh, and are well prepared to try to address uh, whatever issues come. But um, uh, really, this is the road through Paris. Uh, and uh, I think that you will see a commitment from the United States to keep going back at this, uh, to make sure that we are leaving the world in a safer place for our children. So that is the primary thing. I can tell you that there is absolute determination to get this right, uh, and that's from the very highest level. That's from the President of the United States, and his ent entire team is uh, marching out and believes deeply uh, in uh, the need to make sure that we are successful. Okay. And on that note. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody. That was uh, really, I think, quite a remarkable panel. Uh, I guess I have a microphone. Uh, a, a remarkable panel. Uh, and this is such such an important issue uh, that uh, we're going to, again, we're going to be doing a lot more with it. And so I hope we'll be seeing uh, all of you at future, uh, at future events here at the Atlantic Council. So thank you to our moderator, Valerie, and to Alice, Sherry, and Alex. Uh, it just couldn't have gone better. Thank you very much.